Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 1 Peter 3 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. In Ephesians 4, Paul exhorts his readers to be, quote, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, unquote. But when we survey the landscape of Christianity, we find division. Many denominations with differing views and doctrines have emerged since the first century. Why do we have so many denominations? If Christianity is true, why do its members disagree about so much? Let's talk about denominations today on this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. You can access this episode as well as all of our other episodes from our website, cacg.stjamesglencarbon.org. Aaron, the scripture verses I cited clearly call for Christian unity, but certainly this unity is not the case. Should we be ashamed? Uh, you, uh, yeah, it depends, right? I mean, if, uh, um, if we should be unified and uh, there's no good reason not to be unified, then we should be ashamed. But sometimes uh, it would be bad to be unified. If there's a, there have been, uh, in American history, there have been um, church bodies that were, you know, for instance, uh, supported slavery back in the pre-Antebellum South, South, the Southern Presbyterians, even the Southern Baptist Church. Um, to, to unify with them would be in error. But to unify with somebody with whom there's theological agreement and uh, whose uh, actions um, are in accord with Scripture, uh, I think that we should be ashamed if we're not unifying with people with whom we should be unified. Well, even if we're unifying with people with whom we should be unified, we're still not going to be unified. There's there are going to be people we shouldn't be unified with. Right. And therefore, we don't have unity. Yeah. It sounds kind of frustrating. It's like, what are we doing here? The Bible says, be unified. Right. And we say... No, that seems to be a problem to me. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it is a problem, and, and it, it really does go back to the fact that uh, all of us, it, the Bible says that every human being is fallen, and we've talked about this a lot in here, turned in on ourselves is one way of talking about it. Um, Id, idol worshipers is another way of talking about it. The Bible talks uh, um, about the noetic effects of sin. It doesn't use that word. Noetic? Yeah, it's just a fancy word that means when Adam and Eve fell, it damaged not just the behavior of the human race, but also the way our minds work. None of us is able to completely 100% know and assent to truth. All of us are wrong about some parts of our thinking. And as a result of that, uh, we're going to disagree with a lot of people. And when we disagree with people, uh, you know, the options are that we're right and they're wrong or that we're wrong and they're right or we're, bo- we're both wrong. But, but in all cases, just the fact that somebody in the equation is wrong means that there's going to be a lack of unity. And so, like, like you said, in some sense, it's, um, it's uh, unavoidable. Early in the Bible in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel make separate sacrifices to God. I guess they're engaged in mm-hmm. worship. 
God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's, and the result, Cain murdered his brother. Right. So was that the end of unity? Well, um, it actually goes back to their parents in the story. I mean, in, in the story, uh, Genesis 4, where Cain kills Abel, this is the first murder, uh, is a result of what happens in Genesis uh, chapter 3, where Adam and Eve rebel against God and uh, choose power and pleasure uh, over the power and th- th- their own version of power and pleasure, over the power and pleasure he's offering them. And one of the things that immediately happens is that Adam and Eve turn on each other, which, uh, there you go, that's the noetic effects of sin. And not only did their behavior, um, not only was it immoral, uh, they chose to worship something else besides the one true God. Their brains were also messed up. They couldn't see clearly that it was either one of their faults, or they couldn't see clearly that um, that they were both guilty in the matter. One of the, you know, Adam throws his wife Eve under the bus, and Eve throws this famously throws the snake under the bus. Adam throws God under the bus, and so right from the beginning, um, wherever sin is involved, there's going to be disunity. And then it works out throughout the rest of the story. It works out through their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids. And here's here. Here's me and you sitting in this room uh, suffering from the same sort of thing. In Jesus' day, back in the day, for those who claimed their descent from Abraham, there was a lack of unity among the Jews. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Essenes, there were Zealots. Today in Christianity, we have Lutherans, Catholics, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Baptists, Pentecostals, and more. Should we just admit that unity is a worthy aspiration but an impossible reality? Well, so it's not as cut and dried as that is the thing. In some sense, so it's like like we've been talking about. Um, because of the fall, we're never going to be able to until Jesus returns and makes all things new. We're never going to be able to have this complete unity. But it's it's not as simple as that. There's, you know, unity. I mean, in human relationships, there's always elements of unity and elements of disunity in any sort of close relationship. So I'm unified with my wife, I believe. We I mean, we share the same bed, we share the same dinner table, we share the same bank account, uh, we share the same three uh, biological children, um, but there's things that we're uh, disunified about. She, she does not like historical fiction, and I do. Um, there's food that I like that she will. She likes Taco Bell, and I'm sort of iffy on Taco Bell. Uh, we we have disagreements about uh, other things too, like more serious things besides uh, you know what kind of genre books we're reading. Things like you know how do you deal with a teenager? Um, we're we're fairly unified, but that's not it's not we're, it's yeah, not like fairly we're on the same unified. Page. Yeah, you know what fairly unified is not unified. Right, that's right. There's uh, um, th- there's some disunity there on how to handle this, and a lot of it is personality. A lot of it is a lot of it's the gender of the kid. You know, I'm I'm harder on my son, and she's harder on the daughters, and that's a that's a gender thing. Uh, a lot that's of that's a human thing, right? It's, it's yeah, for sure. There's uh, um, there's I mean, there's a whole lot of other factors that go into it. Like I said, personality. She's um, she, she's a little bit more laid back. I'm a little bit more intense. A lot of it is upbringing. She grew up in a home that was uh, fairly lax. Uh, kind of like the parents were like, "Hey, do what you want, you know, just keep yourself safe." And th- she had free reign; she could do, do what she wanted. I, I grew up in a home that was fairly restrictive. Uh, I had a hard curfew and lots and lots of rules of behavior. As a result, I actually am now way more lax than she is, 
interestingly enough. We've both sort of switched to the opposite. Well, that's all these factors go into there. And, and when you when you talk about, you know, the unbelievers look at the Christian church and they say, well, like, you know, if, if, if God is real and Christianity is real, why don't you all, how, why are there so many different kinds of you? And the answer is one that I think that we all understand. This has got to be a really good answer. Well, I don't, I don't know if it is or not. Because, well, the, the problem you just brought up, that's the pivot point. Right. I mean, I think if we didn't have their attention before, we have it now. Yeah. For the person who perhaps is a fallen away Christian or the person who is an agnostic or thinking about Christianity, they read this, finally, all of you, all of you have unity of mind, yeah. not some of you yeah. and not some of the time. Right. And we don't. And we can't point to a single phase after the resurrection and the ascension where we could say, there, this, that, we had it in the fifth century, or we had it in the, we had unity. We can't do it. Yeah. It's not there. That's, that seems to almost be a deal breaker for somebody who's investigating this question. Well, that's one way to look at it. One way to look at it is to say, well, Christian churches never had unity. And of course, in a sense, that's right. Like, you know, like I said, my wife and I have never had unity. If what you want is people who are 100% in lockstep with each other. That's what it says, all of you. Yes, but we, we've never had that. And, uh, but however, we do have that. We do have, there's so much we're unified on. So here's, here's one way we can talk about it. We're, we have a, a, you know, a, a bit of, I won't say disagreements, probably too hard, but we have different philosophies a little bit about how to raise the kids. But one thing we do have in common is that we're both agreed that we will back each other up 100%. That um, whatever she decide, whatever she thinks is best in, in the moment with dealing with the kids, even if I think I would have done it differently, I 100% back her up. So there's definitely a level of unity there, and there's also disunity. And I, I would just ask somebody who's thinking about the Christian church in terms of like, well, it's unbelievable. You know, if you guys are so right about everything, why don't you agree? I would just say, well, look at your own closest relationships. It's basically the same way. And if you can't even come to a place of 100% unity with your best friend or your spouse or your closest loved one, how can you expect people who don't even how can you expect somebody who sits in a Baptist church on one side of the town who doesn't know anybody at all in the Catholic church on the other side of town to have that same sort of unity? But this is a good spot to say this, I think. It's easy to say, well, you're a Baptist and you're a Catholic. I happen to be Lutheran. And to say, well, so you don't have unity, right? And I would say, okay, yeah, I don't worship in a Baptist church. I think that the Baptists are wrong about some stuff. I think that the Catholics are wrong about some stuff. But on another level, we do have unity. One of the things that binds us all together is that we all believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We all believe that the crux of human history, the redemptive plan of God, his plan to recreate everything and to fix all the problems, was that the second person of that trinity would become human to die on the cross and rise from the dead. We all agree about that. Now, we don't worship in the same buildings, and we call ourselves different names on one level. But on another level, we are all Christians. And to live in the tension between it's not see, see what I'm saying? It's not as it's not as simple as and, and the reason why I'm not a Baptist is different than the reason why I'm not a Catholic. And, and that's different than the reason why I'm not a Presbyterian. And so it's very, very complex. But the thing that binds me to Presbyterians, Catholics, and Baptists is all the same, is the nature of God, uh, what he's done in human history. And so it's, it's not as simple as just saying, well, you guys don't have unity. Well, 
you're right, we don't, but we do as well. The Bible is not a short book. It's a lengthy book, and it is just full of truth from Genesis to Revelation. We cannot justify our disunity by claiming, well, we don't have enough information. We have a lack of information. How is it, do you think, that intelligent, thoughtful, believing people could all read the same book and come to so yeah. many different perspectives and conclusions? Well, I, I think this. I think that's a great question that's worth talking about for a minute or two. I, I you know, the one of the things that people who aren't Christians might look and be like, "Well, you guys claim to be right. If you're so right, why can't you agree?" And, and the answer is, is is what you just said is that, like my wife and I agreeing that however much we might disagree about how to handle the kids, we do agree that we are 100% on each other's sides. All Christians agree that the Bible is God's true story, big capital S story. We've talked about that in, in, in uh, past episodes, meta-narrative. It's the, it, it is the true story of his plan to rescue the world that rebelled against him. Okay, now that's there. It takes, I'm going to try to be careful here and talk slowly, and I honestly, I think we've talked about some of this stuff before, but uh, maybe I'll have to, you, you check me, Chuck, if I need to go back and explain some of what I'm about to say. It is, an, it is a modernist mindset, a very materialist, rationalist mindset, which says human beings can look at something, can look at a tree and have 100% access to what that tree is. In, in our case, a human being can look at the Bible and understand what it means. That's a very positivist. Um, it's a very positivist mindset that humans have the rational power to access truth directly. Whereas the way the world really works, and this is honestly the the rest of the world thinks like this. Besides the West, the the, the so called global South thinks like this. And in human history, up until the 1600s, everybody knew this was the case is that human beings, while there is absolute truth out there, whether it's the tree that you and I are looking at or it's the Bible that we're reading, we all see it from different perspectives. And that what that means is this, is that, it, so some people might say, is knowledge objective or subjective? And uh, uh, you know, a certain, a certain type of person on the left wing of Western ideology would say, oh, it's subjective. You know, you make your, you make meaning as you interact with the world. And a person, a certain type of person on the right side of the ideological spectrum would say, oh no, it's completely objective. Truth is out there. And I think that the better way to think about it biblically is that those are both the case, that there is such a thing as objective truth. I see the tree, but you see the tree from a different perspective. You might think of it in terms of shelter. I might think in term, um, think, uh, think of it in terms of future firewood. I just talked a few minutes ago about my wife and I, who our backgrounds strongly influence the way we think about raising our kids. I, I don't, I, I'm not super comfortable with the strict way that I was raised. Angela is not super comfortable with the lax way that her parents raised her. And we both come to the issue of kids from this different perspective. And the kids are there. There are kids. They're actually there. There's certain principles of the way you raise kids, but you can only do that from your own particular perspective. Okay, so looking at the Bible, when Christians come to the Bible, it's super important to understand that all of them come with their own perspective on it. And I'm not, I just want to, if any of uh, my uh, ideological right friends are out there, I'm not about to say that 
it's all you just make it up as you go along. The, the, I firmly believe that the Bible is God's true story of how he has dealt with humankind. But I see that from a, from a certain perspective. Um, I live in a certain country. I have a certain background. I have a certain, I have a certain style of education. My culture values things um, like money and the material world and um, uh, upward mobility socially and economically. All those things influence the way I read the Bible. So if somebody comes to me and they grew up in a culture, even if it's a culture right down the street from me, that values the spiritual and the intangible more than the physical, it's just going to affect the way that we read Scripture. And that's what we're all sussing out as Christians. We all agree about the basics of it. But it's not as simple as, well, the Bible tells us truth. Just go ahead and believe it. You can talk to any Christian about the, any sort of, of – of, you know, any sort of uh, theological question, um, you know, like baptism or, or the Lord's Supper or uh, you know, uh, the way church governments should be structured, uh, all these sorts of things. And you can see that that where they grew up in really strongly influenced. So, for instance, I'm, a, I'm an American Christian. American Christianity, by and large, has not liked hierarchical church governments. We have not liked Episcopal forms of church government. Now, if you, we've, we've not liked that sort of thing. And one of the reasons is, is because uh, we're all capital L liberals. We like more congregational church structures. It just happens to be an American thing. I mean, there, there are Episcopalians in the United States, and there's lots and lots of Roman Catholics. But by and large, um, America has by and large been a Protestant country, and in fact, largely Baptist and Methodist and the reason why is this non this non Episcopalian structure. Okay, that's just an example. So, why does my church differ with another church on church government? Is it because, well, you guys can't agree on absolute truth, so you just all must be wrong? No, we're all we're all reading the same Bible. We all agree that that Bible is authoritative, but we just read it different because we're coming from different backgrounds. And like you've said earlier, that's a lot of this is just unavoidable because we're all different people and. When you plug into that the fact that our brains no longer work the way they were designed to work, we're frequently wrong about everything from you know, the, the, what the weather is going to be tonight or whether I should take this path to get home or this path to, to avoid traffic, and especially ideological stuff. Perhaps the attainment of unity is not the point. Perhaps the pursuit of unity is what matters. You just reiterated a point you made early on, and that is in the fall of Adam and Eve, we, we didn't just suffer a physical breakdown, but our ability to think and process information right. and identify truth is also crippled in some ways, which seems to suggest that if you're in a serious pursuit of truth so that your truth is so irrefutable that everybody will agree with you and we'll have unity... It's not possible. It's just not doable because we're functioning with limited uh, thinking abilities, thinking or processing right, abilities. Yeah. So here's my question. If we talked about justification, if we said you're an unjust person and you need to be made just. Right. And you said to me, okay, what do I have to do to be justified? A Christian would say there's nothing that you can do. You have to believe in your Savior, Jesus Christ, and receive the gift of faith and the mm -hmm. gift of justification. It's a gift. 
Can we say the same thing about unity? You can work and work and work and work with your limited faculties, and you're just not going to get there because we're still broken people. But where there is unity, it's there because God gave it as a gift, as opposed to us sweating and getting our knuckles white-knuckled right. in pursuit of that unity. What do you think? Um, well, first of all, if you kind of want, want the background on this, go back and listen to our episodes on um, you know why good works and Saint and Center. I would say that we're definitely treading on, and um, I want to be. We, you know, we have talked about this justification and sanctification. So I'm not just going to throw those terms. And again, if the, if this is the first episode you're listening to, please go back and listen to those episodes for some background here. We we are sort of. We are right now messing around in our conversation with the relationship between justification and sanctification. Justification, just roughly, is that our relationship with God is based upon the fact that he gives us our identity in his son, Jesus Christ. He states that we're not guilty. We're declared not guilty in the cosmic divine court of law. Sanctification, roughly speaking, and this is very, very simple because there's different ways of talking about sanctification in the Bible— is for our purposes here the process by which Christians become as they grow closer to the Lord, as they're living in the Word, as they regularly feed on the sacrament, as they're in Christian community, the process by which Christians slowly become more like Jesus. It's never perfect. It's in fits and starts. So when you say unity belongs in the justification category, I say, yes, absolutely. Ephesians 2 says that in the blood of Jesus Christ, God has reconciled Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together in him. That is a fact. All Christians, whatever church we go to, all Christians have been joined together to Jesus Christ and are now daughters and sons of God. That is a fact. Now, But there is a sanctification element to this as well, which is, God wants us to begin looking like this more and more. He wants us to pursue unity. Jesus prayers, prayers. Jesus prays in John chapter 17. He says, Father, make my children, make them one like you and I are one and have been since before the foundation. So this is definitely Jesus. He has made us one, but he can also pray, make them one. Make it a reality. Make, him a, make it a lived-in, experienced reality that they are one with each other. So to go back to your original question about uh, you know, the journey and the destination, if Jesus is praying that we will actually be one, I think that's a worthy goal. And I don't, I, I don't think in, in, at any instance, you know, Jesus wants us to be holy as well. He says in the same chapter, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus wants us to be holy. Um, I don't think it's ever – uh, it's never a good excuse to say, well, we're not unified, but – you know, just that's that's Jesus's business. It is, that is true, but it's not ever an excuse to enjoy or to relish or to contentedly live in lack of unity. So, destination journey. I actually don't think that the destination is always the goal, and a journey is meaningless without one. Um, you know, people. There are people who love to cook. Eating the food, the, the the prepared food and the prepared dinner and the enjoyment of the food is always the destination. Nobody loves to cook and then just throws all the food away when once they've made the meal and said, "Well, the, you know, it's all about the journey." That's all I was interested in. Journeys only make sense from destinations, but destinations can only be arrived at through journeys. 
And so I think they're both, uh, it's both the case. I think that unity is a goal we should pursue. We should enjoy the pursuit of it. We should live for the pursuit of it. We should aim for the pursuit of it because that's the destination. That's our future destiny is that Jesus is going to make us one. Finally, in lived experience as we are underneath all of us, all Christians together underneath the blood of Christ at the cross. So the journey or the pursuit of unity, I'm checking to see if I'm hearing you correctly here, is possible after justification has happened. Right. We can, people can have yes. unity on a secular level. Sure. They can agree on various things, business propositions, etc. But if we want to talk about the brothers, behold how good and pleasant it is when the brothers, the Christians and sisters, dwell in unity. Right. We're talking about a justified group of people. Yeah. A sanctified right. group of people. So there are two ways to look at the journey. And of course, we get this kind of messed up from time to time. We don't use our good works and journey along the path of good works to finally get to justification. Instead, yes. we believe and we are justified, and that produces a journey of good works through the rest right. of our lives, God willing. Yeah. Sanctification, we are uh, not part of the world and then spend a lifetime trying to set ourselves apart from yeah. the world so we finally arrive at that place, but we are gifted with yes. sanctification, and then we live our lives on a journey of putting more distance between us and the yeah. world. How about unity? Yeah. I, I think you're totally right. I, I think that, you know, Christian unity, the conversations that, so again, I'm a Lutheran, the conversations that I should be regularly involved in with my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters or my Baptist brothers and sisters only make sense if we are all sharing the same identity in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, only if we have all been connected to him. That's the only way for else. Else, we're just trying to like figure out, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be artificial. It'll be, we'll, we'll be trying to bond over, well, you know, you do good works over here and we like to do good works too. And um, it needs to be something deeper than that. So I, I, I think you're totally right. I think that this initial unity that Christ I mean, it, it's that's our identity is that we're one in Christ. That's the foundation from which to grow in unity in our relationships. So let me throw you a curveball. You ready? Dig in. I don't want to pick you off here with my curveball. Luke twelve fifty one. Jesus says, "Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division." Yeah. Well, maybe that doesn't belong in the unity conversation. I don't know, but that's what Jesus said. And this division is severe enough to go right to the nuclear family to set yeah. parents against their children, yeah. vice versa. Is it possible that division in its proper context can also be a gift? Now, you and I, we're Lutherans. We're descended from the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation um, from 500 years ago. That was a divisive thing. Yeah. But I think we would argue that it was a good thing because error had crept into the church right. and it needed to be addressed, yeah. needed to be corrected, and the church needed to be reformed. Yeah. Well, it was divisive. It certainly wasn't unified. Yes. Unifying in it, yeah. and that, that division remains today. Yeah. So what do we do with that? Well, I think that this this is a great unity 
uh, text, although he doesn't use the word unity, right? Is that so? What Jesus is doing there in the Gospels is he's taking away the old forms of identity, the old forms of unification. So in the Jewish world, going back, you know, from Jesus' day, going back thousands of years, the family is the primary social unit. It is your, you, you grow up in your family, you don't it's move your away. Everything. It, that is who you are. In fact, you know, the Jews didn't have last names. One of the most common ways to name, to, to identify a Jew would be but by his family or by his, uh, um, or by his occupation, which was, is the same thing to say, you know, uh, Simon, son of Jonah is the same thing as saying Simon, the fisherman, uh, you know, Simon wouldn't have had a last name, but that's how you, ide- that's who that is. That's the, you know, who that Not person is, that's their family. Right. And also uh, in Jesus's day, um, I think you mentioned this in a question a few minutes ago, they're starting to, the, uh, well, it goes back earlier than this, but by Jesus's day, we know from Josephus that the people have divided up into, um, and again, staying true to their families, but by and large, they uh, divided up ideologically into different parties. There's the uh, Pharisee party and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, and they're all sort of divided up uh, actually based on political questions. How are we going to deal with the Roman occupation? It's all tied to religion as well. How is God going to deal with the Roman occupation and how can we partner with him? And all these groups, uh, and you can see in the New Testament, if you read the Christian New Testament, you can see that different groups are trying to suss out, especially the Pharisees, are trying to suss out, is Jesus on our team or is he not on our team? And when Jesus says things like this, I come to bring division. What he says, what he's basically saying is this, is I'm not, I'm not coming here to comfortably affirm you and your current identity groups. Instead, I'm going to insist that I become the marker of your identity group. I, in other words, I become your unifier. And if that means that you leave your parents, that's what you got to do. If that means that you that you leave the Sadducees, if that means that you get up and walk away from your tax collecting booth, or from your uh, fr- from the boat that your father is sitting in fishing, if that means you get up and you come with me. That's what you're doing. But what Jesus is doing is this. So first of all, he's not saying that your jobs are unimportant, your family's unimportant. What he is saying is that I am the most important unifier. And so it really is a comment about unity. And whatever unity we have with other Christians. And I also, I want to say this too. I'm not trashing other kinds of lesser unity, which aren't as important, but still are worthwhile. Like I, if, I, if I'm, um, um, I've traveled before. And uh, um, been somewhere far away from my home and bumped into a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And there's something kind of, you see a guy wearing a Cardinals hat, there's something kind of like your heart connects with that person. It's not a big deal, but it's there. That, I'm not saying that that doesn't have value. And I'm certainly not saying that family ties don't have value. But what I am saying is that the, our primary unifier has to be Jesus. And to, like this goes back to your comment, uh, Chuck, about justification. If that's who we are, if that's who all Christians are, that gives us the foundation to start working towards being unified, but in Jesus. Jesus is the common identifier. And anything that undermines who Jesus is in his gospel means that we have to like we, we have to separate from that. So uh, denominations split, like I said earlier, during the Civil War. It wasn't just political. It was political, but it was also over what does the Bible say about who people of African descent are in the image of God or not. 
That's, that's a gospel issue. Did Jesus come to reconcile the two into one, or did Jesus come for the white folk? And that was a cause of disunity. But it wasn't just, well, we don't like you and we disagree with you. It was very much centered on who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What's the nature of the gospel? And that unity was created and affirmed on one level, but it needed separation to happen, to step away from those who denied who Jesus was on another level as well. Finally, what if I say, I don't think I'm going to see an end to denominationalism in my lifetime, but I think I can be eager to promote unity among the members in my own congregation. Would that be enough? I think it's good. It's a great start. And I, you know, when, we, when Christians talk about unity, um, they definitely mean like unity with uh, you know, fellow believers who agree or who are like-minded with them. Although it's worth pointing out, you brought us Lutherans up a few minutes ago. Lutherans are horrible about this sort of unity. <laughs> so how, how many Lutheran denominations are there in the world which disagree? So it's not like just being Lutheran or just being Catholic means, oh, I can just associate with the Catholics. Well, you got trad Catholics, you got Vatican II Catholics. Well, okay, so Baptists, they're all unified, right? No, there's trad a gazillion traditional. traditional yeah. yeah. So th th there's a gazillion Baptist denominations out there. So it's not that it's not as easy. I, I would say, yeah, that's a great start. Unity with the people in your unity with your family, like to build a relationship with your with your best friends or with your kids or with your spouse over our shared identity in Jesus Christ. Super important. But I do think if Jesus's prayer in John 17 is legit, make them one as you and I are one. I think that we have to be chasing this down as well, which I think it behooves my denomination and whoever's listening out here, your denomination, to continually and constantly be in theologically rich conversations with people from different Christian denominations seeking unity. And somebody might be, you know, I mean, just cynically, is it going to happen or not? Well, so you, you don't want to make it happen cheaply. You don't want to compromise who Jesus is cheaply. But you also, it needs to be pursued. I, let me say one, one more thing real quick here. When we're having this conversation about pursuing unity with other Christian denominations, I think it's worthwhile to point out that there are good reasons for denominations to exist. I haven't yet said this. Um, frequently, when what we believe the Bible teaches about who Jesus is conflicts with what another denomination teaches, it's worthwhile to say, we affirm that you are Christ followers and you are brothers and sisters in Christ, but because of what you believe about Jesus and what we believe, just practically in a worship service, it's not going to go together. Like what you believe and what we believe are going to come into conflict. It's best if we have two separate churches. That's different, I think, than the disunity that comes from personality. Many denominations split over following certain leaders. You see this in 1 Corinthians 1 where you got the Peter people and the Apollos people and the Paul people. But I think with all those people, it's worthwhile always staying true to who you are in Jesus Christ, but pursuing, even if you think it's not going to be possible, to continue praying that God would answer his son's prayer in John 17 to make us one and to continue chasing after that. So however hard it is to find, it's good to keep working in that direction and yeah. never to abandon that pursuit to be unified with uh, the people who are close to you and the people whom we love. Thanks for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. 
If you'd like to express your opinion on this show, you'll find a comment option at the bottom of the episode page. And if you enjoyed this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God, please tell your friends about us. I'm Chuck Rathen.